writers can, will, and have come up with some very strange stories, but what if reality is weirder than anything that's ever been seen in fiction? And speaking of weird fiction and weird reality, what happens in each of them when memory fails and time breaks? It's a very ominous pair of questions and I have a very not ominous guest on this episode to help me with them. It's Eric Abrahamson, one of the founding members of Paper Republic and actually the editor of our story for this episode or the editor of the translation of it. Our story is Flock of Brown Birds by Gofei, a particularly strange, disjointed and occasionally creepy tale. It's amazing by the way, very much been looking forward to do this episode and here it is now for your listening pleasure. So first thing we're going to do is a little quick listener feedback section. So one little interesting interesting is not the right word one gratifying or just happy piece of feedback i got from a couple of listeners was about our guest on uh, the episode about young lian um brian holton some of you guys really loved him um, there was some concern as to how intelligible he might be for uh english as a second language speakers but you know what even if you don't understand precisely the meaning of uh, what myself and Brian were talking about, because we might have come a little bit too Scottish for international audiences, I think you got the good vibes that were coming across. And honestly, that what, what a great guest he was. If you've not listened to the episode on Yang Lian's narrative poem with its translator, Brian Holton, do it. It's a great episode. Um, we had a more kind of, what can I say, critical or philosophical little piece of um, discussion on the uh, Church of Fic Discord group, our little um, group chat for fans. We were musing over whether the fantasy series by um, Regina F. Kuang, The Poppy War, counts, counts maybe sounds a little bit too much of a value statement, a value judgment, um, whether it can be called Chinese literature or not. This is a series of fantasy books written in English, set in kind of a magical version of China, inspired by Chinese history and some people from it. The author is um, it's R. F. Kuang, Rebecca F. Kuang, I believe, who uh, was born in China, moved to the U.S. at four, and got all her education in the U.S. Although undergraduate education was in uh, Cambridge in the U.K., I think. Um, so, with all that information, would it make sense to call her? A fantasy series, Chinese literature or not, there was a little bit of difference in opinion as to like the right descriptor, descriptive term for that series in our um, Discord. All in good, uh, good humor, of course. But if if this is a debate, maybe debate sounds a bit too heavy. If this is a discussion you'd like to weigh in on, then just look out for the join link to the Discord. That's in the link tree list of links that I uh, have pinned at the top of my Twitter, and it's also in the Instagram uh, bio, the Church of Fix Instagram bio. So yeah, if, if you'd like to weigh in on that, or lots of the other discussions we have in the Discord, that's how you can do that. That's all for our listener feedback segment. Now let's go on to 
the news, the Twitter fake news. So our first news item is about, yet again, the author Chen Fan. So yet again, he's done a little interview with an English language uh, media outlet. This one is Six Tone, who specialize on, I guess, all things China. It's a really cool little online publication. Um, so the interview, or no, sorry, it's not an interview, is it? It's a it's an article. The article is titled Trapped by a Pandemic, Decoding Messages from Other Worlds. Sci-fi writer Chen Fan reflects on dystopia, fear, and the meaning of world literature, world literature at a time of crisis. So yeah, it's uh, his thoughts basically on, well, I don't need to describe it, do, you, do I? Because the, sub, the subtitle just described it perfectly. But yeah, that's up on Six Tone. I will put a link to that in the show notes. That's our first item of news. Our second item of news comes via Paper Republic and the Centre for New Chinese Writing, both of which I've talked about oh so many times on the show, so I'm just going to read this little post. Paper Republic partners with Lead Centre for New Chinese Writing, give it a go literary translation. What better way to spend lockdown than having a shot at literary translation? You know you always wanted to try it, so why not have a go now? Paper Republic and the Lead Centre for New Chinese Writing have partnered up to offer an essay by Deng Anqing as a piece for first-time translators. And then they've got a link there. The deadline is 30th April. I'm recording this now on the 21st, so hopefully you guys will listen in time. Well, those of you who wish to take part and hadn't heard about this opportunity yet, hopefully in the narrow window that you'll have um, between this episode going up you catching the episode and the deadline of this thing that your um your shot at translating that article will be something that can be completed oh my goodness my sentence is falling apart as it progresses let's quickly march on to the third news item okay i should say um before i begin this third news item the link to the paper republic um give it a go translation thing me bob will be in the show notes but yeah, this third news item is a self-referential one. It's about an upcoming series of episodes I'm planning to do. Now, a wee while back, I did a sci-fi series. Um, it's exactly what it sounds like. I was covering Chinese sci-fi for about... I think it ended up being something like six episodes in a row. It was very fruitful. And I'm planning to do pretty much the same thing, but for wuxia and xianxia, uh, wuxia's offshoot. So wuxia being... Chinese martial arts stories, basically. Xianxia being the kind of fantasy version of that. I'm just going to call it the Wuxia series, though. I, I think it's a more fun word. <laughs> I, like the, I like that letter W. Or maybe I like W-U. Woo. Anyway, Wuxia. Um, I've got quite a lot of topics and guests lined up, but if you're listening and think that you could talk about a particular translated piece of Wuxia, doesn't have to be one that you've written or translated, you could just be a fan, but if you would like to come on the show and talk about wuxia, then do not be a stranger, just get in touch. And even if you don't want to be a guest, if there's something you'd like to hear, or a particular angle or perspective, um, please do get in touch, because this is going to be different from the sci-fi series in the sense that... um. I'm very uneducated. Uh, when I did the sci-fi series, this was after having done a master's dissertation on the topic from a publishing angle, and from having read quite a lot of the stories. This time, 
I'm really ignorant. So if you want to just take an opportunity to educate me, how can I say no to that? You'll, be, you'll probably be doing me a huge favour. But yeah, that's the end of our third item of news, and indeed, all of this episode's terrific news. So without further ado, let's hear the interview that I had with Eric Abrahamson about Gilfay's Flock of Brown Birds. I always say this, but it was a really fun chat and I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed, what can I say, conducting it, directing it, carrying it out, whatever. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Testing, testing, calibrating the mic. Nice. As far as I know, that's fine. That'll do it, yeah. So I'm on the show with Eric Abrahamson. Hi, Eric. How's it going? Hi, Angus. Doing pretty well. Cool. This is something like the third or fourth episode in the row in the age of... um, coronavirus is your self-isolating passing reasonably well yeah it's sort of by turns it's um it's frustrating and and kind of enjoyable uh you know you'll have a few days where it's just nice to be at home baking bread and hanging out with the with the kid uh, mm. or the kids and then a few days of, of cabin fever and wanting desperately to get out it was yeah. we had a week of nice weather in seattle which is rare for us here and so i think everybody just sort of put coronavirus on pause and went out to the parks and walked around and, and we had to get yelled at by our mayor to go back inside well, um, what you say about cabin fever resonates because I'm literally in a cabin right now. So <laughs> the upside well, is... That sounds fairly safe. That sounds like the best place to be. Very safe, yeah. Um, I was talking with my family on, on Zoom, actually, where we are right now. Um, they were talking about the, the weekly ritual that's become a thing in the UK where everyone claps for the health service and other essential workers. Mm-hmm. But that's not happening out here in the countryside where there's like two other houses. So... And you'd look like a fool just coming out and clapping all by yourself. Yeah, only the horses and the rabbits are going to hear. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we could keep talking about the virus, but that's literally what everyone else is doing. So let's just <laughs> keep going. Um, what can you tell the listeners about yourself? Um, so let's see. Uh, my name's Eric. I am from Seattle, where I am right now, um, but spent most of my 20s and my 30s in Beijing. Uh, mm. First as part of a study abroad program to learn Chinese. I uh, just never came home, and I stayed there for, um, I guess I was there for 16, 17 years altogether. All right. uh, yeah, so I was there for quite a bit. Um, thought I was going to be a journalist in the beginning. Turned out I wasn't a very good journalist. And uh, in the time it took me to figure that out, uh, I got better at Chinese, and my sort of original love of literature came to the fore, and I ended up sort of sliding sideways into translation. Was that a journalist uh, concerned with China, or just a journalist in general? Just uh, just journalism, journalism in general turned out to be uh, harder than I thought it was. <laughs> mm. I worked for a local English language magazine in Beijing for a couple of years, which was fun, but it was sort of like a um, you know it was like a listings entertainment. Uh, Bars and clubs, kind of a kind it of magazine. That's Beijing, was it? It was the very, the very one. Uh, this, that's Beijing. This uh, podcaster used to be an intern for that Shanghai. Oh no, kidding! Oh, that's hilarious. That's, uh, these are small worlds, uh, small uh-huh. worlds that we're we're moving in here. Yeah, I was there. Let's see when we were when it, I got there, sort of just as uh, Marquito was getting pushed out, and it was, and it became the names changed. It went from that's Beijing to the Beijinger, I think, at some point around that around that time. Right. Well, speaking of small worlds, uh, I, th- I might have relayed this anecdote on the show. Um, I'll be as fast as I can. 
my entry to China was like a TEFL teacher in a random wee school in the sticks. And I happened to be in、uh, Wukang Town, Dujing County, which is right next to Morgan Shan, where Mark Kittle's book、oh, nice. China Cuckoo is set. And the school I was teaching at,、yeah. uh, Morgan Shan Foreign Language Primary School, was where in years past his kids were. So I knew about Mark Kittle first because of my random, well, essentially random little provincial school I was sent to by the company that. Served as an agency and sent me there, and then later returning to China and getting that little internship, found out. Well, I actually already knew that that Shanghai was his company because China Cuckoo says as much. But、um, it was not planned at all.、Uh, that's amazing, and semi coincidentally to con- continue this this chain of events,、uh, Morgan Chan was the location of the first BCLT Sino English Literary Translation Training Course, of which there were three. Um, right. And the Morgan Chan one was the first, and and kind of represented the、um, the earliest like real cohesion of of Paper Republic as an organization, or or it sort of sort of cemented what was already there、um, de facto. So that was a, that was also that place is, is is dear to my heart. We would do our translation training seminars during the day, and then in the evening everybody would gather at Marquitos bar slash restaurant slash carousing、uh, locale, and we get very drunk in the evening. That's fantastic. Yeah, fun memories.、I've、had breakfast at his、uh, hotel. I've not had the evenings entertainments. What was the acronym you rattled off there? BCLT was it? BCLT was. I don't think it's even called the BCLT. So it's、um, part of the. It was part of the University of East Anglia, and I think it, it was the. What did that stand for? Anyway, I think it's called Writer Center Norwich now, or right, at least、yeah. there's there's kind of like a confluence of several organizations, and they have these.、Um, Translation training courses that are sort of modeled off of the、uh, MFA creative writing seminar、um, model, modeled off the model. So there were three of those uh, in China, uh, in Morganshan, in Suzhou,、uh, and again, can't remember the the other one was in Anhui, I think. Right. And I was a student at two of them, and, a, and a, an instructor for the third. Anyway, those those events are very near and dear to my heart. Really, really enjoyed those. Mm. So, but to get back to the sort Suzhou, of Moja, Moganshan and Anhui, quite a nice little Jia,、uh, yeah, not Jiangzhou,、uh, Jiangnan sort of area. Yeah, 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 and and all of them in sort of in really nice environments, like very very nice sort of physical、uh, physical settings.、Mm-hmm. Sorry, anyway, I so I got I, ahead of myself、yeah. there.、Um, there was it was the it was that's Beijing for a couple of years, and then I thought I was going to be a freelance journalist,、uh, pitching stories to newspapers and magazines, which turns out to be really difficult、um, mm. to make a living at that. You need to do you know two or three stories a week, which means you know you're not really going deep into into anything. You're kind of just rattling things off. You're constantly pitching. You're getting two hundred dollars an article.、Um, it was just highly stressful and sort of depressing. Yeah, turns out that I, I'm missing some of the key、um, the key skills to be a journalist, such as、um, The ability to ask people uncomfortable questions that they don't want to answer, and also talking to people on the telephone—all、uh, all these things are, are、uh, things that I'm bad at.、Uh, yeah. So eventually, I sort of realized, oh man, this is just not going to work. What I should have done was get a, a proper job, and I was trying to be a freelancer.、Mm-hmm. And about that time,、um, you know, I'd started to read Chinese fiction. I had started to do a little bit of translation, not with any you know great great plan in mind, or you know, no idea of a career shift or anything like that. But but literature has always been my first love, and so it seems like sort of a natural thing to. Yeah, it seems like to me anyway. There's no no path to turn literature into a career except kind of weird magical paths that you just find yourself. Unless you can, yeah,、exactly. unless you're really good at applying for jobs that everyone wants. Oof, oof. And some of us have tried to get into publishing and and and、uh, had difficulties with that. Yeah,、um, I've sort of ended up in a semi-publishing role now, but it's very much sort of unorthodox, and and it would be very hard to get a, a straight-up job in the publishing world. 
Mm. But yeah, I've got this sort of odd career now cobbled together of various contingent uh, random bits over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned Paper Republic there just uh, a minute ago. Can you tell the listeners, well, I've, I've told the listeners a few times what Paper Republic is, but maybe what you can do that I can't is um, tell the story of Paper Republic, its origin story, yeah. so to speak. Sure. It, uh, it came about because a bunch of us who were interested in Chinese literature or already doing translation um, in Beijing got to know each other and started hanging out. So there's uh, uh, Brendan O'Kane, Cindy Carter, Jim Weldon, um, I think Joel Martinson and Alison Liu were there from the very beginning. And so we all got to know each other and we sort of ended up like at the Beijing Bookworm, you know, drinking in the back and talking about literature and arguing with each other. This was before the first uh, BCLT summer course. Right. And at some point, I think we decided it would be good to have like a group blog where we could put up some of our, inf- our, our information and um, thoughts about things we were reading or trying to translate. And I think that was the origin of the website. I re- distinctly recall, I could be making this up at, at this late remove, but I, I recall us all being in the back room of the bookworm talking about what we could, what we could call this website mm. and somebody coming up with, uh, you know, we we're playing, playing on the usual Chinese cliches and we we're something, something, the PRC, the Republic of China, Chinese Republic, Republic, Republic of paper. And then somebody turned that around to paper Republic and then we had it. And so it we uh, a really used cool that name. I, I like it. It sort of fits, you know, it, it, it fits us in a lot of different ways. It's kind of, a, you know, a, a, a nation of the mind. It's uh, an idealized, non-existent um, fraternity or sorority or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm very pleased with that. People don't, you know, it doesn't always immediately make people think of China, but I think that's okay too. It's better than something with like pearls or silk or dragon. Yeah, that wouldn't be good. I mean, I think it, it has a little tiny bit of the connotation of just paper tiger, but it's not... It's not, right. yeah, it's not like the Great Literary Paper Tiger Society or something like that. Yeah, sometimes people do call us uh, Paper Tiger, which is unfortunate, but, you know, you know, whatever you choose, it's going to it's gonna have something wrong with it. Mm. Do you own any of the other Paper Republic, uh, the Notebook Company's products? Or have you ever... <laughs> no, 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 no. We're engaged in a, in a quiet uh, search engine optimization war against, I think it's an Irish um, stationary company called <laughs> Paper right. Republic. I'm sure, I'm sure they're lovely people, but I, you know, I always sort of... Every once in a while, like every six months, I'll Google us and just make sure, you know, see who, who comes out on top. Not that it matters at all. I mean, you're never going to be searching for the, the same yeah. things at the same time. Oh. But I, thought, I did think that was funny to see that there was somebody else with our name. I wish you good luck in the wars to come, as they say in Game of Thrones. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. I remembered what it was I wanted to say earlier when you mentioned how one skill that you felt you maybe lacked is asking uncomfortable questions. Well, sometimes yeah. I imagine like an alternative universe version of my podcast where I needle and attack all my guests, but it's uh-huh. not really what I do. Um, but it's, with that it's in mind, so easy to attack translators. It's like we have oh. no defenses whatsoever. First of all, the, the work itself is always some, you know, some degree of failure. And then uh-huh. we as people, translators as people are often not very, not very good at, um, not very good at uh, online debate. Yeah. And um, I feel like with any discussion about China has the potential to get fraught and it's so it would be so easy to be nasty and um have a go at people it's been it's been i've been so careful over the past well it's worse than the past year now or Mm. really just the past few months i've been so careful on you know twitter or wherever uh to just shut up um yep (laughs) i just i don't have anything useful to contribute to that argument uh i i'm reading what's out there but people are just popping off the handle so easily 
with such ridiculous arguments, I just thought, you know, this whole thing, um, this whole thing can just would just be better avoided. I, I'm just not going to participate. We do have a WeChat group with a with a bunch of translators, Chinese authors, and Chinese publishers, as well as some random uh, literary people who are involved in you know the the promotion of Chinese literature abroad. And that uh, that group has stayed fairly civil. We've gone up on two wheels a couple times, I think, but um, but every time we've sort of managed to bring it back down. So that's that's remained civil and a uh, and a place where we can have some real conversation. So that's been that's been nice to see that. It's fantastic. Here's for diplomacy and keeping an even head in this weird weird yeah. weird world we live in. Um, so speaking yeah, of okay. friendly questioning. Let's get onto the main body of the interview, and I'll ask you some friendly questions about our uh, author for this episode, who's Gofei. You can you can needle a little bit. A little yeah, bit. Gofei. Well, they do call them needles, not swords, don't they? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I won't swing the interviewer's beheading uh, weapon at you. Anyway, um, Gofei. The Claymore, yes, for you know, representing my culture, <laughs> Scottish culture. That's right. I'd need two hands for that, and that is a good thing about podcasting. I have both hands free. You know, I'm not holding a pen or anything. Right. So, um, <laughs> Claymore talk aside, um, Gofei, a question occurs to me um, that's not in my list of questions here. Gofei is his pen name. So, um, I wonder if you yeah. could tell me what's his real name, and does the pen name Gofei? mean anything or is it just is it just you know, so I was, nice i was just thinking of that this morning his real name is liu yong mm. uh which is just sort of like a very standard you know bog standard chinese name and you could see why if you're trying to be sort of a if you're trying to be a writer you might you might ditch that uh right. give her something more interesting i was thinking this morning as i was going back over uh some of his writing i was trying to think what what on earth does this actually mean and i'm i'm very bad at interpreting chinese names apart from moyan which is which is sort of the big obvious one um, yeah the others are sort of I mean go as in like you know squares or blocks or 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 slots into which you can fit things mm. phase as in like a general negation, so maybe he's saying that he's a round peg in a square hole all right um maybe that's a facile uh, interpretation and then there's really more to it I mean I'm sure he'd be annoyed as all get out to have his name uh, analyzed like um, right but the best that I can think of is is that maybe it means you know he doesn't he doesn't fit one who does not fit in. That's that's what I'm going with anyway. Well, Don't tell I, him I said that. I can see that. Um, as I guess I could see that as as we'll probably get into as this interview progresses, we'll maybe see how that idea of being a little bit different uh, in one way or the other fits either his writing or his well his, this piece of writing, his writing as a whole, or his identity as a writer. Because um, the the tag that seems to be attached to him, at least if you go looking, is that he's a avant garde, a member of something called yeah. Xianfeng Wenshue. So Wenshue being literature and Xianfeng, I didn't try and look up what that means. I'm assuming that means avant-garde. I don't know if that's right yeah. or not. That, so it's basically a one-on-one translation. It's just avant-garde literature. Yeah, Xianfeng, I mean, literally is sort of the, the, the spearhead uh, or the, uh, the tip, the point. It's the forward, the forward point. So it's, yeah, avant-garde. Cool. Uh, right, yeah. makes sense. What I've read about... Gofei being uh, identified as Xianfeng or avant-garde is that he might not agree with that. So where does the truth lie here? Is that a misleading label or the um, Gofei rejects? Or? Yeah, I think it's a label that doesn't really mean all that much anymore. Um, mm. My understanding of Xianfeng is that this is something that came about in the 80s when at that point, you know, Chinese literature for several decades had mostly been sort of Stalinist, um, you know, social realism, right. uh, 
uh, in, you know, pressed into the service of politics. And in the 80s, with this influx of translated foreign literature and the lifting of sort of political demands on, on the arts and, and literature in particular, people just started writing whatever the hell they wanted. And right. my understanding is that Simhung basically just means, you know, writing that is no longer um, the socialist, realist, Stalinist, you know, stuff in the service of the state. It basically is, it indicates uh, literature that's gone back to what it normally is in other times and places, uh, which is the writers writing whatever the hell they please. So right. I don't think that it's, I think it's useful in sort of a historical sense, because that's, I mean, that's a, an enormous um, historical moment in, in contemporary Chinese fiction is the revival of the 80s. But I don't think that it's very useful in terms of, you know, identifying styles or, or content or anything like that. I think it's, it's basically just literature returning to its original nature. Okay, that's a good way of uh, looking at it. Um, in an intro, or in a preface rather, because Falker Brown Bars has a little author's preface, author's preface. Um, Gofei talks a wee bit about the the, um, the reopening up, or whatever you would call it, of literature in China. Uh, he says that things that had been shut out of China essentially came back in. Uh, and it was, the, the writers he cites are all kind of like European modernist writers. And uh, the list of names is actually more non-fiction writers, uh, maybe half non-fiction writers, half fiction. So I've, I've got the preface in front of me. He says uh, something, something, I was greatly influenced by the writing of Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, Heidegger, Freud, and Wittgenstein, as well as the fiction of, so all those guys were philosophers, basically. And then we have some fiction writers rattled off here. Kafka, Joyce, Borges, Proust, and Garcia Marquez. And then he says how, there's a, how there was a modernist movement emerging in Chinese literature. And the thing that struck me right away was, it seems almost like China was having a modernist movement opened up out of a time capsule, you know, out of sync with literature in the rest of the world, or at least the, the, the Western world. Is his description of that, in your view, kind of an accurate one? Or is it just one that suits him? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and uh, I always sort of regret um, being too young and not being in China. That I would have liked to have been there in the 80s. I think it would have been a lot of fun to right. see basically this culture roaring back to life. Mm. Um, all these new uh, works of literature being translated into Chinese. Uh, the translations at that time were often done by um, by writers, uh, by other by, by Chinese writers. So there, and oftentimes there were particularly good translations. Um, mm. And there's sort of a like a so the the novelists that he lists there, uh, with the addition of maybe Kundera and Tal Calvino, there's sort of it's the same roster that um, most Chinese writers who came to prominence in the 80s. They were all reading them. You know, Marquez in particular had a big effect on Moyen, uh, Borges and, and Italo Calvino sort of lent this, uh, their imaginative power uh, to, to Chinese writers. Um, Kundera had sort of the, the confluence of politics and humor and, and storytelling sort of that gave, um, that gave Chinese writers kind of a, a, a way of attacking politics through literature. Those writers were enormously influential in the 80s and in a way... Um, no other foreign writers have come, have really re replaced them as having that much of an influence. I think after that, you know, Chinese literature then had its own new canon. It had its own um, group of writers in the 80s who became sort of the, you know, the, those who revived Chinese literature. And so uh, Chinese literature became less dependent on, on these foreign um, imports, basically. But at that time, those books had an enormous impact on Chinese fiction. And you'll still hear writers like Yu Hua, Moyen, Kofei, you'll still hear them talking about Borges, about Kafka about Marquez, those are still sort of the touchstones uh, for modern Chinese literature. And 
sort of later Western writers, you know, European, South American, uh, American, just haven't had quite, quite the same influence on Chinese literature. Right. What you've just said there makes me think of, again, things Goffey said in his preface, which is pretty short. Um, he said how basically this particular story that he wrote um, in the 80s, quite early in his career, is like really of that particular moment. So I'm just going to quote what he said here. Um, Despite being its author, I found it extremely tricky to come back to this piece after 30 years to write my reflections. China has been in a constant state of flux during this time, very true, and art and literature have been choked by the constant need to readjust its perspectives and focal distance in relation to society while struggling to find a sense of its own existence. And then this is the main part that was jumping out at me just coming up here. The social system and cultural atmosphere that gave birth to nurtured and encouraged pioneer literature, I guess that maybe means... Xian Feng Wenshu, avant-garde literature, no longer exists. So basically he's saying this book is kind of a product of its times. Those times are gone. And so things like this aren't really going to be written anymore. Do you think that's right. more or less true? I mean, who knows what he's talking about exactly? Like that right. preface is a little bit of a, a cop-out. He's basically like, I reread the story. People have asked me to explain it. I still can't explain it. Right. Uh, and that was, <laughs> that was basically the preface. So it's yeah. like, thanks. Thanks, Gofei. I think... Um, Let's see. I think that writers at that time in the mid to late 80s had sort of an open field to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were very, I don't know, very idiosyncratic pieces of fiction. These were writers who sort of did deep dives into their own heads, into their own aesthetic points of view on the world, and came up with books that were really, um, really quite unique to them. uh, And very sort of just very, very personal and sort of very dug up from someplace deep is I guess what I'm trying to say. That and I think that true to the book. Yeah. 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 You can see this. I mean, this flock of brown birds just feel, it feels like some weird fever dream he had and he woke up and he wrote it down. Mm-hmm. And I think the, you know, fiction over the past um, 20 years or so within China has been much more sort of uh, socially contextualized. It's much more contingent. People are paying much more attention. You know, there's more of a, there's more of a social literary hierarchy. First of all, there's more of like a literary society that people are dealing. Uh, And there's also much more of a a feeling like a a, a need to sort of that literature needs to reflect what's going on in the big picture. Uh, Whereas I think in the eighties, it was a lot of writing that just reflected what was going on in the writer's own head. And that's, you know, an ugly generalization, but I I think to a certain extent it holds up. Yeah. I mean, you can have um, a surreal sort of book, which is like a dream detached from society or like some historical context and then you could have a magical realist sort of book which is just a magical version of some stage of history um i i'm not going to say what it is but i've been involved in kind of like the production of a translation of a um chinese a, a a chinese author's work of like magical realism and it's it's a it is very strange little book but it's based on it's all about the industrialization of a region. Mm. It's a real, it's a real place, uh, a particular time, I think, in the eighties. And that, although it's a lot of strange things going on in that story, it's grounded in a way that this one's totally not. This one is. It's called. I feel like it's called Flock of Brown Birds. Maybe one reason because the book itself is. Whew, it's you know it's flying here and there. Yeah, and it's sort of it's sort of hard to grab onto. You know, it's made of all these little little pieces, and you sort of when you reach out and try to grab it, you kind of your hand just goes right through it. Kind of. mm-hmm. Yeah. So. If we can ground our own 
conversation a little bit. You were involved in, I think, editing or helping to put together a series of uh, little books, which this Penguin edition of Flock of Brown Birds is contained in. So there's, um, I think there's four little books in this series. We'll, we'll talk about them more later on. But just to rattle them off now, there's this one by Gofe, Flock of Brown Birds. There's Radish by Moyan, which I've covered already on the show. And then the other two are Petulia's Rouge Tin by Sutong and Maro by Yan Lianke. So we will talk more about the series as a whole later. But what I want to ask you about Flock of Brown Birds, or Gofe particularly, was was he as an author like a write-in? Did you definitely know you wanted him in this series? Or was it more of a painstaking choice, picking him out from lots of strong contenders? Yeah, um, I definitely knew I wanted him in there. Uh, when I first started thinking, so the you know penguins had that line of um, of short pieces, penguin specials for for a long time. So this was basically right. just me pitching some books uh, to be included in that in that line. Right. And I didn't the four year rattle off. I just I know we'll talk about this later, but I just want to make clear that Sutong came later, and that was not um, that was after I had already. I only did the three. Oh uh, right, okay. The Moyan Yalinko and the and the Gofei. So the Sutong was later. Right. Um, no. <laughs> so basically, I I went to Penguin and I said, you know, there's a whole bunch of really great uh, novellas out there that nobody's translating because nobody wants to publish novellas. And they said, well, we've got this, you know, this great line that's specifically for um, short to medium length uh, pieces. Mm. And so I went through, uh, you know, having said, there's all these great novellas out there. I had to go back and sort of uh, figure out what they were. Uh, and I think Goffet, I knew Goffet, I wanted him in there. I believe it was Kanan Morse at the time because uh, Kanan Morse is fairly deep into Goffet. And I right. think that he was the one who had read it recently and said, oh, you got to put this in there. So mm. I got that. I got that from him, and and Kanan's gone on to translate uh, more Gofe for the New York Review of Books, uh, some of which has come out, some of which is is forthcoming. Yeah. So I think Moyen was obvious, Yelian Ku was obvious, though I didn't know which one, and then Gofe was definitely like right from the beginning. This was something we wanted. Mm. Um, I actually have one of the other, well, the other English Gofe book that you can buy right now on my bookshelf. Uh, it's the Invisibility Cloak. Kenan yeah. Morris mm-hmm. is the, I, the the translator behind that. I, th- I think my edition of that is also Penguin, though. So I wonder if New York Review of Books sold the rights to publish that elsewhere. In is it uh, really Penguin? To, let me check. Oh no, <laughs> I'm completely wrong. Uh, NYRB, yeah. right? We yeah, actually acted as uh, agents for that book, uh, so I'm pretty clear. I was I was there for right. that, for the right <laughs> sales. So I'm pretty pretty clear on that one, though. I thought it was possible that they had sold it to Penguin. Um, I'd like to talk more about the other Penguin specials uh, books later on in our, our chat because mm-hmm. there's quite a lot of interesting China-related books in there. But focusing on Gofei right now, this question is going to circle around and return to Kena Morse. But first of all, I've got to read the start of it. Gofei studied at East China Normal University in Shanghai, and he's from Jiangsu province. And Jiangsu and Shanghai are all in the kind of approximate region where I lived in China and spent a lot of time exploring uh, Jiangnan. I talked a bit about uh, what Jiangnan is very early on in the podcast uh, with the translator Dong Li, because um, he had he'd translated one of the po- poet Juju's poems. The poem's title was Jiangnan Mingguo, and I think he called it South of Yangtze Republic was the English title for that poem, which okay. is, I think <laughs> nice. in, our, in our chat, we're like, that's a nice name. And um, he said, yeah, how could you possibly do better than that? without a huge footnote explaining what Jiangnan was. So um, I'll maybe, maybe, I guess I'll try and rattle off my definition of it now. It's like a particular region of China 
south of the Yangtze River, which is um, green and fertile. It has lots of canals. It's associated with like arts and literature and prosperity and nice, not like wild, rugged landscapes, but like pleasant landscapes. That's my understanding mm-hmm. of Jiangnan. And it's something I felt kind of strangely attached to, maybe because I lived in Zhejiang, then Shanghai, and saw a lot of Zhejiang and Jiangsu province, which are two parts of Jiangnan uh, when I was living there. Um, so all this is getting to the point that I was um, reading up on Fei, and I was kind of pleasantly surprised to see that his what's regarded as his big work in Chinese is this Jiangnan trilogy, and the first of which initially I thought it was already existent in English, translated by Kanan Morse, but I've learned just today it's not actually out yet. So I guess the question I'd have for you is, does Jiangnan mean anything to you, um, apart from just being a concept? And do you know much about this Jiangnan trilogy? Um, I think, you know, the d- division between North and South in China is sort of like the, it's like the grand cultural divide of mm. of, of China, you know, and it's, it's historical, it's uh, culinary, it's, you know, the way people look the way they talk um it's aesthetic it's economical economic it's uh, geographical i mean it's really sort of the big the big split right and i think you know as somebody who uh spent all of his time in china in in beijing i'm kind of sort of i am obliged to be uh sort of a chauvinist for the for northern <laughs> china um i you know i know we can we can i'm you get your claim or i'll get my i don't know what <clears throat> that's the weird thing the, in the uk in the UK, I'm a northern guy. I'm from Scotland. Yeah, yeah, but in yeah, China, yeah. I kind of yeah, my allegiances are a bit different. And there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of similarities. You know, the north south divide exists in a bunch of different places, and it's often like you know the northerners are are the big, bigger, stronger, brasher, ruder, cruder. Um, you know, more direct, more hail and hearty sort of hail, you know hail fellow well met kind of kind mm-hmm. of people. And the southerners are supposed to be you know have more delicate sensibilities, uh, mm-hmm. be sort of politer, more cultured, more educated, perhaps slightly effete uh, in the view of the northerners. There's all these you know stereotypes, and and they uh, they definitely obtain in China as well. Um, mm-hmm. So I've spent all my time in the north. Uh, I'm sort of an obligatory northerner, um, though when it comes right down to it, the the authors that I like the most uh, actually do tend to be from the south, from from Nanjing, from the Shanghai area. Um, right. So that's I don't know. You know, it's it's like one of those distinctions. It's just not it's just not worth um, getting into big arguments about. No, but no, you no. can really feel you can feel a difference, and I and I think that Jiangnan literature maybe maybe it tends to be a little more place focused, a little more intricate uh a little a little more delicate in its sort of in, in its sensibilities as i just said it's mm. it's possible that you could see you know that kind of a, a commonality uh between it to my embarrassment gofei's you know major trilogy here the jonan trilogy i actually haven't read um this is this is a, a little a moment of shame for myself this is something i should actually i will take okay i will take the quarantine days here to to find a copy of these books and read them i should have read them years ago yeah um my my only impression, what I've heard about them is that uh, they're a little bit different from his shorter work and that they're a, a bit more normal narration. So a lot of his short stories and novellas, as we've seen here with Flock of Brown Birds, are odd in some way uh, or experimental yes. or have some sort of strange narrative thing about them. And, and what I've heard is that the longer novels are a little bit more straight ahead. And you could see in something like The Invisibility Cloak, you could see you can see him sort of like halfway between those two worlds. There's it's a fairly uh, it's a fairly normal novel, but there's just odd things about it. It's not out and out like bizarre, but there's just little little odd moments where things and are maybe the tone as well. 
Yeah. And the tone is you keep thinking, well, God, there's something else going on behind the story. You keep thinking he's going to, there's going to be some like big revelation of something bizarre um, Mm. is about, you know, that something's about to happen and it never does. So maybe that, um, maybe that novel is kind of placed between his Jiangnan trilogy and his shorter works, whatever. Right. Um, That's what I've heard about the trilogy. uh It occurs to me with all the talk about uh, Keenan Morse, he's not the translator of Flock of Brown Birds. The translator is Poppy Toland, who is a name that's popped up uh, quite a few appropriately popped up um quite a few times in my court my i guess my journey through translated chinese fiction slash my journey through doing this podcast uh, but this is i think this is the first translation by her i've ever read is is this wee book so what can you okay. tell us about poppy toland um she is i wonder have i met her i think i've met her in london once oh well never mind you can take that part out there's that's <laughs> that's meaningless um <laughs> Poppy's uh, one of the most active and, uh, and and skillful translators out there. She's done a bunch of novels, a bunch of short stories. Uh, I edited this with her, as, and she's done several short stories for um, for Pathlight Magazine, mm. um, which is this this silly journal that we do. Uh, she's great. She's very solid. Uh, she's got a great sort of literary style. Um, she's somebody you should have on the show. She's got a lot to say about uh, about Chinese writers and, and Chinese fiction. Yeah, I had originally. Um, because, uh, you know, this, the recommendation to do Flock of Brown Birds originally came from Canaan. So we were originally talking about having him do this translation as well. But, um, but in the end, uh, Penguin went with, with Poppy uh, right. but, and, and it came out great. Yeah, I have to say it's, um, I said this about uh, Radish as well, but I, I felt the same way here that the prose in, in this book is the English prose is absolutely a pleasure to read. It's not too in your face, but it's also just, I don't know, it's pretty or it's pleasing. <sighs> The, the words Good. themselves are pleasing. Um, that's what I'm trying to say. Good. Yeah, indeed. That's success, then. <laughs> it is, that is success. Um, it's a page turner, and there's only 50 pages, so it's over before you know it. Um, yeah. yeah. So just rewinding slightly what you were saying about um, Jiangnan writers, quote-unquote, and rewinding further back to what I'd said about there being other um, Penguin specials books dealing with China, I'm just bookmarking this as something to maybe bring up later. There is a little series of Penguin China special, Penguin special, Penguin China specials books, which are called the Zhejiang series, which are little, I guess, short stories and novellas by writers from Zhejiang. And I was just looking up to see if they're all on Amazon or whatever. And I've learned that they're pretty recent they're just from this year or last year i think oh. have you i've i've not got any of those or read any of them have you seen anything about those no i haven't uh no. what's is is the sutong part of that series no i think it's all writers who are lower profile in in the west maybe lower profile in china um than the authors in this series um i can I, I don't have the names in front of me, but um, it's not the easiest series to find information about online. Maybe the uh, marketing for them is forthcoming. But um, yeah, I might put a link to... Or this, some is, information yeah, this is sort of one of the awkward things about Penguin China is that they are, um, they are owned directly by Penguin Australia. So right. oftentimes the books that they do in translation are published in Australia, but not anywhere else, mm. um, which has been a headache for them for a while i think so that sometimes that can make it difficult to find uh these to find these penguin specials i know that the for instance the yelenko um was originally was later bought by grove press which publishes yelenko in, in the u.s and right. included in a collection of his novellas so so like these penguin specials aren't even distributed in the u.s in the u.s they're you know the text goes to someone else or or doesn't go anywhere at all yeah, well, uh, a little bird, maybe a little penguin, did tell me the Zhejiang series were done in partnership or in some kind of um, working together with the Zhejiang 
Publishers Association. So yeah, yeah that happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've actually um, met the Zhejiang Publishers Association. This is a very strange little story, um, or a funny wee coincidence. They were visiting Scotland um, whilst I was on the publishing master's course at Edinburgh Napier, and it just so happened that for whatever reason, the first um, little stop on that visit was in my university's building, and it's Edinburgh Napier. It's not like the big famous university, University of Edinburgh. And there was a talk there by someone from Hachette and someone else. And then they got on the bus to DC Thompson, who are a big publisher in Scotland and the UK of like newspapers, magazines and whatnot. Because DC Thompson were trying to sell the rights to basically den- or get get some kind of rights in China sold for Dennis the Menace, not, not the American Dennis the Menace, <laughs> the British one, um, to these people from Zhejiang. And DC Thompson are the biggest company basically in Dundee, where, I, where I'm from. So yeah. It's very wow. surreal. And the, 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 it is bizarre. And the best memory I have of that little meeting was, um, I think the British Dennis the Menace is a lot more naughty than the US Dennis the Menace. And for international <laughs> listeners, he's basically just a bad boy with a dog. Um, he's become a bit less naughty as times have become kind of more wholesome. But he's still a bad boy. Um, and one of the, the um, Zhejiang publishers put her hand up and said, I'm curious uh, if he can, if this character can find much success in China, because I don't think that Chinese parents will approve of him. And then it was mm. quite amusing because I got to see the editor of the Bino, the magazine that Dennis the Menace is a part of, saying, well, actually, Dennis the Menace always learns that he has to look after his friends and his family and stuff. But yeah, it was a surreal experience. What a tangent. <laughs> Let's march on. <laughs> what a cool connection. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't get any of their names or their WeChats, but yeah. So we've talked about Gofei. We've talked about the Penguin series. Um, I'd like to talk about Glock of Brown Birds now. So a good way to start might be by reading the blurb. It's a pretty cool blurb. I'll, I'll not describe it anymore. I'll just read it. In this avant-garde novella, Memory and Time, are subjective. A writer named Gofei retreats to the beautiful solitude of the waterside, the big W, to finish his novel, which is inspired by the revelations of St. John. He perceives ominous and portentous signs in the natural landscape around him, particularly in a flock of brown birds that flies periodically past his window. The arrival of a mysterious woman named Chi magnifies his anxiety and sense of temporal disorientation calling into question his grasp on reality. And then after that, there's a little bio for the author, Gofei. Um, so what I wanted to ask you, since this is a pretty hard story to like write a blurb for or pitch or summarize, uh, my question for you would be, how would you describe this story to listeners who haven't read it in a way that might hint at the plot or the structure a bit more than that blurb did? Okay, now it's when I'm having my, mm. my quiet think. I don't blame you. I guess I would say... It's the story of somebody who's undergone a profound emotional shock, something that has unseated his reason to a certain extent, mm. um, perhaps tipped him over uh, into a descent into madness or schizophrenia. Right. And the story of, of him attempting to retain his grasp on reality uh, and to use, use the fact of being a writer and use narrative technique uh, to keep himself attached and located uh, and to yeah to maintain his grasp on on what is real. I guess that's best I can do. Maybe that doesn't really help uh, help readers understand anymore what happens in the story. But it seems almost um, almost pointless to to go and talk about plot details because it just won't make any sense. Yeah. Um, but I think it's very much you know throughout the story you can see him attempting uh, 
attempting to, you know, to find little tricks to, to hold on to what is real, to sort of remind himself of what is real and what isn't, to ascertain for himself and to sort of just, just give himself a sense of confidence. Yes, this happened. Yes, this, this person um, knows me. I have a relationship with this person. And it all starts with him, you know, at the waterside, looking at these migratory birds and mm -hmm. sort of telling himself, you know, that as long as these birds are flying, uh, that's a reminder that, you know, the seasons are ongoing, that the, the rhythms of nature are still there. And that, in a sense, gives him uh, a grounding in reality. Yeah. And, and the whole story is, is him just trying to, trying to hold on to that grounding. Yeah. Um, I think something that, this is not a criticism of the blurb, because I really love this blurb, but I think your answer hinted at something the blurb doesn't spell out, which is that although this is a, it's like a very short novella, it's kind of a story within a story. Um, mm -hmm. The writer slash character Gofei at the waterside talking to this lady Chi is kind of a framing device for the story that makes up the main part of the 50 pages, which is right. like the story of this guy, how can I say, following a, just noticing a woman, following her, and then becoming more entangled with her. I suppose that's the best I can describe it in one sentence. Yeah. 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 That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's not like there's no plot. It's, it's no. just, uh, it's just sort of hard to, it's hard to know what's real mm -hmm. and which is his problem as well. I mean, that's his problem as a narrator, as a writer, what is, what is real. Mm -hmm. We have the same difficulty. And uh, so I reread this story um, for this episode because I'd read it just for my own enjoyment a wee while back. And a lot of the things that jumped out at me on the second read that didn't jump out at the first were just how interwoven or imposed on each other the framing device story and the story inside are. And mm -hmm. the, the other sense I got is that your, your um, description of it you gave, you, the description you gave it feels like one reading of it. It's probably the most logical reading or the most the reading that makes sense of things in a rational way but i feel like there's right. quite a lot of other magical or even genre fiction readings you could do like to play I, my next question was a really blunt one i was going to ask you what's going on but it sounds like your your description of the your summary of the story there was like kind of like a it was like an explanation right like a solving of the mystery yeah and i think that you're you're right what i said about this you know maybe being a psychotic break and his ability to hold on to reality i think you what you said is right. That's sort of, that's the, the first reading that you would come to. That's mm -hmm. like the, the initial interpretation, the most obvious thing. Um, but I'd be curious to hear, I mean, I think there are many layers to the story. I'd be curious to hear what else you're, you're seeing in there. Yeah. Well, I, I remember um, in the preface, Scofay says he doesn't quite know what to make of the story itself, or he doesn't quite know what it means. So I didn't feel under pressure. Like if there was some deeper mystery, I didn't feel totally under pressure for it to make sense. Just right. had some kind of a sense to it. But yeah, there, there's, I think the blurb hints at the kind of hints at time being weird and the fact Gofei is using the, uh, the birds to uh, get a sense of how time is passing. I'm, I'm just, there were things that jumped out at me in the very first few pages that made me wonder if something even weirder was going on, that he'd, this is really just my own, um, my own kind of literary preferences coming to the fore here, but I wondered, is he trapped in some time loop? Has something dislodged in his mind that he, it's not really that he's, he, he's insane and he's just not understanding time. Maybe something really weird and magical, like in a Borges novel. Is or Borges' story is going on. So let me try and find some evidence for what I'm saying. Okay, okay. He says, but I can't see that the season is changing. Uh, every day I wake to find a layer of white frost in the dark tiles of my roof. Uh, da -da -da -da. Oh yes, in the cold and in the cold black night, I observe strange astronomical phenomena. 
shooting star is traveling in all directions at the exact same speed and the moon distorted in the shape into the shape of a cherry assuming my memory hasn't been obstructed then something must be interfering with time yeah. so immediately I'm, I'm i'm imagining some i don't know strange force that's disrupted reality and trapped him in this little house by a lake and the thing that leaped out at me on the second reading is that the, in the framed narrative he's also beside a lake it seems to be a different one but what if it's the same one and all this speculating isn't going to get to the bottom of anything but i think that's maybe the point of the book there's something really mysterious going on yeah and i remember that we had this is quite a while ago now but i remember that we had some discussion about that line assuming my memory hasn't been obstructed something seems to have gone wrong with time and i and i think the i think memory if i okay this was like a, a remove of several years here but i think the chinese was um something about which is actually more often translated as just a, an error you know like when your when your computer crashes or something oh. like that that's a that's a gujang so i don't remember what exactly our um the discussion what you know why we ended up on uh, with obstructed maybe because it made more sense or something but it seems at this point i i kind of don't like it because it makes it, it there's a passive sense to it it's like my memory has been obstructed you know okay so who's done the obstruction right um, it sort of hints at like some some other agency whereas i think uh, if you just say my memory is if my you know has ended there's an error in my memory or something like that then it's much more it's much more like okay something is going wrong with my with my brain and so right. yeah you're right he's saying either i'm crazy or something has gone wrong with time and so mm-hmm. maybe you know our first our first uh, interpretation is that he's crazy but maybe you're right maybe an equally correct uh, interpretation is, some, is that something has gone wrong with time and the the odd the changing nature of his relationship with this woman she where like you know is this one is this one visit by her is it multiple visits she you know she treats him very differently on different visits um maybe actually the two of them have a perfectly normal relationship we're ju- we, but maybe we and he are seeing different sections of it rearranged in time which is why it's confusing to us um, mm-hmm. that's that's a possibility that is a possibility yeah um i think later on i'm going to reference a, a film director but i'll just say for now um another thing i got reading the story is how filmic some of it is um one thing that jumped out at me a couple times um that recalled my time as an undergraduate student in film studies modules was learning about the different kinds of cut. So Mm. when you jump between scenes, you can do it by a jump with two totally jarring images. You can match the, or you could do a match cut where the camera movement, like say the end of the scene, you move the camera right. The next scene, the camera is moving right at the same speed or something like that. Or you can match it on an image. So the, the one that your teachers in film studies always cite is Lawrence of Arabia lighting a match and then it cuts to the sun, and the sun is the same point of the fire in the match. So that's right. a match cut. Literally a match cut in that case. Um, and the one that really, um, well, it's not designed to jump out at you, or maybe it is. It's a bit where in the framing device story, um, Gofei, the author slash main character, is telling a story to Chi, and they've stayed up all night. And in the story he's telling to Chi, he's staying up all night talking with the woman who seems to have strange parallels with Chi. Why did I bring that up? Um, <laughs> I, <don't laughs> I, was, I was looking forward to it. It sounded like it was going to be something good. Um, yeah, I think that was just to lead into the next question about the parallels between this uh, the Chi, the, um, the woman who's come to visit Gofei, and the woman he takes an interest in, 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 in the kind of narrative, the story in the story, who that woman we find out was 
became Gofei's wife, but she on the night of their wedding, she suddenly passed away. So like on my second reading, I was wondering like what is the link between these two people? Is one a doubling of the other? Is it literally the same person? Is Chi who's visiting Gofei the ghost of his wife? Is it just a woman who reminds him of his wife? And then later, right at the end, um, there's a moment. A really freaky moment for me, where he sees, he thinks he sees Chi walking by the outside of his house. He approaches her, and she just doesn't recognize him. And that reminded me of、um, some. I think there's films and、uh, TV episodes by the director David Lynch that do this. I don't. Have you ever watched any Twin Peaks? Yeah, sure have. Have you watched the the last season, the third season? No. By the time that came out, and I started, I started watching it. I was like, man, this belongs to an earlier. An earlier time of my life, I don't need to do this all over again. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, but one thing that happens in the third season is some character. I won't give anything away, but、um, there's because there's been such a gap in time. I feel like David Lynch plays with that, but also there are other worlds involved and characters who should know each other meet each other, and one character. Thinks that they should recognize each other, and then the other one just blanks them, and it's like, who, who are you? And there's just something so weird and freaky about that. And I got the same, almost like horrific, that familiarity could be disrupted by something as simple as your friend or lover maybe not recognizing you.、Um, and there's another、That's... TV show that did has a really freaky scene where it's two people who don't know each other, but one character is convinced. She really does know the other character, and then it causes him to doubt his own memory. Don't suppose you ever watched any of Mr. Robot? Ah,、uh, no. <laughs> But again, a freaky thing that I associated with film more than literature.、Um, so, what I wanted to ask you. Now we're getting to the point.、Um, <sighs> did you feel anything filmic or or horrific、um, in Flock of Brown Birds, or is that not something that it's yeah、um, sings to you? Yeah, no.、Uh, I mean, first of all, to your point about that the relationship thing, I think that our relationships with other people are are one of the the things that help us know who we are and where、mm. we are in the world. And the reason that is so shocking that you know suddenly she shows up and has no idea who he is、um, is is because he was very much using that. He was using her as another sort of anchor to keep、right. himself to keep himself stable. And she kept she kept hinting that they had all these friends in common or that you know they had this whole past together. She keeps saying like, oh, but surely you know who Lydia is, and he has no idea who Lydia is.、Mm-hmm. Um, but you can tell that he's sort of like he's like, okay, okay, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna play along or I'm gonna like search my memory. If she's saying this, then it must be it must be true. It must be something about me. And and so she, her presence and her relationship with him are are really crucial to his own sort of sense of sanity. And that's why I think you're right that hits so hard at the end. When she shows up, and and there's these little, just little things that, like, when she when she shows up the first time, she shows up with a portfolio of paintings.、Mm. She's got this big folder under her arm, and he says she came in with this folder, and it looked like maybe a, an art portfolio or perhaps a really big mirror. And she opens it up, and he says, "No, it's not a mirror; it's an art por- portfolio."、Um, and then when she shows up there at the end of the book, we're just giving away everything, but it doesn't matter. It's not like it's not like these are actually <laughs> answers. Or, yeah, or, yeah. There's only fifty pages. She shows up, and she's got this thing under her arm. Except this time, it's a mirror. And he says, "Oh, maybe she's. Are you here to show me more paintings?" And she's like, "Well, who the hell are you?" And no. And also, this thing that he thought might have been a mirror the first time around, this time it is a mirror. So it's it's just everything is familiar and yet broken.、Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you can sort of see that that could be some sort of like a final blow to his sanity, or just it's just a, a profound, profound unsettling、uh, of it, 
what you know little sense of self he was able to piece together throughout this thing. Right. I also thought that there was a real important moment um, in the story when he is early on when he's following this woman and he follows her out into the countryside and it's dark and it's snowing and night has fallen and, and he's on this bicycle and he meets another bicyclist coming the other way and they sort of brush shoulders but he doesn't get a good look at the guy and then he goes on and then he gets to this bridge and he knows that she's going to gone across the bridge. He saw her like go onto the bridge and, and head across, but he can't see the other side. He gets halfway across and a, and a bridge keeper comes across and says, this bridge is broken. You know, you can't, you can't go across. You have to turn back. And he says, well, this woman just went across. And the guy says, no, no, it's not possible. It's, it's been broken for 20 years. And then they go back and then he sees this, the, the bicyclist has fallen off his bike and, and frozen and died uh, on the side of the road. And so that uh, was, that whole scene was very horrific to me. And it's horrific in a very, in a very filmic way. I mean, that's the sort of scene you would, you could absolutely see um, in a Twilight Zone episode or something like right. that. And it's actually so common that at the end of that scene, he's relating the scene to Chi and Chi says, oh, this is the terrible cliche. I don't want to hear this stupid stuff. This is, you know, this is totally cliche. But it's, but it's obviously something that either happened to him or, or he remembers. And the implication is that the cyclist um, was, or one of the possibilities is that the cyclist is, is he himself, that he, that he actually died there. Which in itself is, is another terrible Twilight Zone cliche, but um, but I think also sort of holds the holds the story together narratively. He's he's contemplating the possibility that he is dead or that he has that he has died in the course of the, of the story somehow. So he could be inside life, outside of life. Um, I don't know. It just sort of opens it up into the into new possibilities. Yeah, uh, I'm going to bookmark what you said about possibly being dead. And my mental bookmark is I have to remember that in relation to the revelations of St. John. There's a yeah. question I want to ask first, because I, I thought of this when you mentioned the end of the story, when he meets who might possibly be Chi again. And another bookmark here, I want to mention doubling, the idea of doubling, but marching on. So when he meets Chi in the last, uh, so in this edition, this English edition, this is the uh, third last line of the story. It describes the beach he's on or that his house is on and where he saw Chi walking on as an endless, so possibly a meaningful word there, endless, but an endless brown-red beach. On my first mm. reading, that didn't mean anything to me. That was a color. On my second reading, it occurred to me he'd been going out of his way to describe the uh, dress or the clothes that Chi is wearing. And he always says, I think, orange or brown or red and then in brackets or maybe it's brown yeah he'll either say orangey red or brownish red or something like that and he keeps he keeps sort of correcting himself so like it's it i who knows what this means but the beach that he sees her on has the same color and yeah so who knows what it means i don't know yeah, I know. I really, I really don't know. I really yeah. don't know. And I noticed that too, that he's so, he's so particular about okay, the, describing the colors of the woman's clothes and the way she walks and her boots and all this sort of stuff. And I, no, I just don't know. <laughs> Same. I, don't, I don't know what he's doing there. Okay. So the mental bookmark about doubling, he mentions mm. that one of the people he was reading was Freud. And again, I seem to recall from my first year as an undergrad uh, on the mandatory Freud class in the theory module, um, we did the uncanny that's uh, unheimlich, and I think uh, there was talk of how yeah. dub- doubling relates to that. I forget exactly. Yeah, the doppelganger and everything. Yeah, it's a doppelganger. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think that's. I mean, that's absolutely what's going on uh, in the story to some extent, and I think that that's that is a core concern of fiction, and it's a core um, aspect of madness mm. is that your your mental image of the world somehow starts to to diverge from reality you know and mm-hmm. ideally whatever whatever sense of 
self you got in sense of you know how yourself relates to the world that would always be sort of tightly tied to what's to what's real to what you observe but in in, a, in one kind of madness you can imagine those things beginning to diverge and it's the yeah. same it's the same in literary art you have a narrative that is ostensibly about the world but that narrative can very easily diverge uh, from what is real and mm. and the act of writing a piece of literature about reality you know it, that can reflect that same sort of madness that might happen in a person's mind if their if their sense of reality diverges from 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 experience so that yeah. doubling i think the eeriness that comes from the doubling and also you know him meeting another cyclist who's possibly himself and then possibly dies and then she and his wife um and all these things all these things happening i definitely think that that kind of split you know between one and the other uh and the 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 distance between one kind of reality and another kind of reality that creates a lot of the tension of the of the story and a lot of mm-hmm. the, the discomfort uh, of the story yeah i mean I, you, you do hear stories about people who've had relatives who've had severe memory loss and then this relative let's say it's one's mother your mother looks at you and looks at her family and is seeing the exact same people she should know but for whatever reason she's just really convinced that they've been body snatched yeah they're not the right person and it's yeah not a million i mean it is a very hard thing to imagine experiencing but it doesn't seem one having read something like this where everything is strangely unfamiliar it doesn't seem a completely inconceivable thing and i think that's supposed to be one of the one of the aspects of uh, how schizophrenia presents itself is you're seeing what's there but you're convinced that it's that it means something else or it's not it's not what it appears mm. so he's i don't know gofex really interesting he you know as you mentioned earlier on you were sort of talking about his um his literary uh his literary influences, but also, you know, he lists a whole bunch of, of uh, philosophers as people yeah. who had, yeah, had a big in, in influence on him. And he is different from other Chinese writers of the 80s in that regard. You know, he's, he's very well educated. He's a professor at uh, Peking University. Right. And he's, he's reading, fictionally, he's reading sort of the same stuff that all the other Chinese writers are reading. But I think that he's got a much more sort of systematic academic approach to ideas, to thoughts. Um, he's got a much stronger philosophical background. You know, you hear Moyen said, describe himself as a peasant or mm-hmm. Yuwa sort of speaking with pride about how few characters he uses in his in his writing you know those those guys are not they're not university professors and and go right. very different from them in, in that regard and that he's got a i think a more he's got a much deeper intellectual grounding and also that um, that intellectual predilection shows up in his books as well yeah now this reminds me of um something i was talking about with uh, Lihaila Heward in our episode about Radish by Muyan, another book in this series, where she was saying reading Radish, she, just f- for whatever reason, her little mind's eye reaction to reading the book, she wasn't she wasn't picturing the characters as um, Chinese, or she wasn't visualizing the setting as China. It was looking more mm-hmm. familiar to her. And then she wasn't sure why, but then it occurred to her a few minutes later, maybe that's because she's from a farming part of the United States, where yeah. like a rural setting where people people's behavior isn't so different. And then I said to her, well, this, when I was reading Flock of, uh, that didn't happen to me reading Radish, but reading Flock of Brown Birds, um, I was not always visualizing China, Chinese settings, Chinese people. It often looked a lot more familiar. And I couldn't tell you necessarily what the characters looked like, whether they were <laughs> like people who looked like me or Chinese, but the feeling overall felt either unspecified or sometimes Western rather than Chinese. I felt that way about the invisibility cloak too. It just, it seemed, right. you know, the places and the names and everything were, were Chinese, but it didn't, it didn't feel particularly Chinese. Mm, yeah. And on my first reading, I felt that was maybe because of the kind of bourgeois or educated or, or very middle class or whatever background 
Gofe has and the kind of people and world he's writing in. And like my background is not rural. My my family are all either doctors or artists, and I'm from mm-hmm. the suburbs. So maybe if if it's Lee Hyla's way of looking at it, that it's people that are familiar to you, and that affects how you visualize it. That would yeah. make sense. But on my second reading, yeah. I was looking at the cues that were in the book itself as to like where we are, and I felt like whether this is in Poppy's choices in the translation or Gofe's choices as a writer, it felt either very unspecified or very Western in like the places and the situations. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, um, I'll try I and think of some examples. Like the, the places where, right. Like the places where they go to drink are called inns. Uh, what else? There were other things yeah. as I was reading. Um, the publishing house is just called Black Duck. It's not called like Jiangsu Province Publishing House. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things like, small things like that that add up but are kind of invisible. Yeah, that could be, and that could that could be part of the sort of destabilizing effect of the of the writing. I felt right. the only th- the only parts that really felt sort of recognizably Chinese to me were um, as his relationship with his future wife um, develops, and there's stuff about her, I guess her husband at the time or something like that, uh, who's a drunkard, and the, all those those things seemed a little bit more grounded. There's a little bit more um, environment, you know, like the village right. or the places that they're in. You see a little bit more, and that that started to feel a bit more recognizably Chinese, but you write the rest of it. I mean, people can sit in a hotel room and have a nervous breakdown anywhere around the world. Um, yes. Doesn't, doesn't necessarily need to be, need to be very grounded in, in location. Yeah. Um, the, probably the weird bit that I definitely visualized as China is when he tries to cross the bridge and a little old man comes out of a wee hut and says, no, 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 don't cross the bridge. I've, yeah. <laughs> that reminded me of some experiences in China. But also, <laughs> if you remember when we were talking about Mogan Shan earlier, here's a strange syn- sort of synchronicity, synchronicity, a synchronistic, synchronistic uh, little tale. So very early on in my time in that town near Mogan Shan, I was looking for things to do. I posted in the Hangzhou Expats Facebook group. This uh, English lady who was living on Mogan Shan said, the local government are trying to do a photo shoot um, for like tourism in the area. They basically need foreigners to hop on a bicycle and ride around Mogan Shan. Would you like to do that? And I said, yes. And um, I got brought into this group mostly comprised of these like backpackers from, from England who were a bit, well, I was pretty clueless about China because I'd only been there a few days. They somehow seemed three times more clueless than me. We went on this cycling trip on this newly kind of concreted route through um, the the mountain. But I guess as a lot of these paths around Moganshan and maybe in the Chinese countryside in general are, they had big ditches and there was no fence stopping you from falling in the ditch. And there was one little section where these little ornamental Chinese humpback bridges had been built. They were very small. So that meant they were very steep. And one of them came just before the incline went right down and the path swerved. So I actually saw something like what happened in this story. And one of the people went off the ditch and onto some rocks and got quite badly hurt. Wow. Yeah. So um, that that was another thing. When someone was in a bicycle in a ditch, I was right back in China. Yeah. Um, Bring us back in each of us in different ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, um, grizzly anecdotes done with. No more of those. Um, Let's talk about kind of the world of... um, Penguin China and this particularly the series, the Penguin China specials. Um, so we already mentioned before that you were kind of uh, you pitched and you edited these three books: um, Radish, Flock of Brown Birds, and Maru. Can you tell us a little bit more how that came about? If there's anything we've not covered, um, it's just 
been long been an observation of mine, uh, right from earlier on when I was sort of getting more familiar with Chinese literature, uh, that novellas in particular are sort of a, a strong format for Chinese writers. Mm. Um, and especially, especially a lot of the, the big names now when they were first coming out in the 80s, they were writing novellas, or they sort of, they sort of tr- try their hands with novellas. And so a lot of and these are sort of like the earliest signs of genius with a lot of these writers who went on to, to have uh, big careers and big names. Right. And, and a lot of these just had been overlooked. They hadn't been translated. And in some cases, uh, I, I felt like they were some of their best work. I mean, Yan Yen I like his novels quite a bit, but sort of, I run, it's kind of hot and cold on him. Like every other one, like I, I, I'm not quite sure what to do with, um, mm. but his novellas are just, just amazing. I mean, just like incredible uh, works of literature. And I, I think that the, this, there's a collection of three called uh, uh, so the days, the months, uh, the days, Jesus, this shouldn't days, be hard. Years? The years, the months, the, month, the days. Oh, sorry. Years, months, days, uh, which is how um, it was trans. It was published by Grove in the U.S. And I just think those those novellas are amazing. Uh, really incredible works of literature. No fat on them. Um, mm. Just very inspired. Uh, they know exactly what they're doing. Uh, just very, very, very well-written pieces of literature. And so I just, I went to them saying, hey, you got, you know, there's all these great, great things just sort of lying by the side of the road. Nobody's been picking them up. So why don't we, why don't we do something? Mm. I was trying to get something. I, I was aware that I had picked three male authors and I was trying to get um, something more by female authors. And I was looking at Wang Yi, who's sort of, uh, you know, of that same generation and that same caliber as these right. writers. And she's got a lot of good uh, novellas as well, but the, the ones that I like the best had already been taken or were, were oh. being translated. So so she didn't go in there. And then later on, I got distracted and we didn't, didn't keep doing it. Um, but I think that those three are those three are pretty strong. Yep. And they look lovely on a bookshelf together, I must say. They do. They have those, those nice the series with the different colors, but everything sort of looks like and I'm very fond of that kind of thing. Penguin yeah. does good branding. Absolutely. And, they, and they've got some great uh, nonfiction in there as well. There's uh, David Moser did something about the Chinese development of the Chinese language. Yeah. Called like a billion voices or something like that. Um, and I think Paul French has one in there. Uh, and then there's been, you know, there's been the Sutong, there's been more translations as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and they're quite nicely color coded as well. I've got a little, um, a contact in, or a, a contact formerly of Penguin China, who should be a, a future show guest who just, um, I, I inquired like, what does the color coding mean? And she ran through it with me. Um, so off the top of my head, because it's a voice message and I stupidly didn't write it down. These orange ones, this is the standard kind of penguin look and your little trio there in the orange format. There's yellow ones and they're kind of a, uh, non-fiction the ones that are about china seem to be concerned with literature there's a hong kong series which is red there's that Jiang series which are kind of a limey green color they look similar to the color that was picked for penguin pocket classics which are color coded by country it's about the same shade of green they used for china in that Uh, there's a dark blue series that are not penguin china they're penguin but they're from a i think it's called the loey or I think the Louis Institute. So they're like papers about China. And there's the light blue ones that I think are the same color as Pelican. And those are nonfiction. And the ones concerned with China seem to be very much about economics and like geopolitics, big politics. Right. Yeah. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's lots of very nice penguin specials books about China and they come in all sorts of lovely colors. <laughs> it's really the colors that are an important part. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they look nice on the shelf. No, they're great. I think that, I think this like, you know, 50 to 80 pages, I think that length is actually 
I don't understand why there's such a um, hesitation about novellas in the publishing industry. They mm. they have this idea that they won't sell, but I don't. I just don't see why. I no. I think that's the ideal length for so much stuff. You know, there's like I said before. I think a lot of the Chinese writers are doing better work at novella length than than full novels. I think for nonfiction, like a lot of the nonfiction books that we're reading, like in the U.S. or the U.K., many of which grew out of like longer magazine articles. You know, they just feel sort of pumped up to 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 fill out. 250, 300 pages, mm-hmm. and frankly would have been just fine as like a, a 50 to 80 page uh, short pamphlet, like a lot of, you know, the sort of Malcolm Gladwell style, like idea books mm-hmm. that just have one idea in them. And, and and usually you don't need 300 pages of that idea, like 50 pages would be fine. I just, I wish more publishers would do this length of, of publication. Yeah. And speaking just very superficially as a reader for the little kind of little happy feelings books can give you you can finish these things really quickly and then you can tell yourself you read a whole book but also the fact that they're not big and intimidating makes it you more likely to pick them up like yeah and it it gives the writer sort of more leeway to to experiment or do whatever the heck they want because you know they don't have to it's it's just a it's just a shorter it's shorter experimentation Mm -hmm. and something like you know this gofe it's it's not like anything is lost by it not being 200 pages in in 50 pages he takes you on this you know bizarre dreamscape journey you know you're it's fully immersive it's fully the effect of reading uh, an entire novel yeah it's just uh, it's just a little faster yeah i think it says in the penguin specials oh yes there's a little uh, thing in the flyleaf here penguin specials fill a gap written by some of today's most exciting and insightful writers they are short enough to be read in a single setting when you're stuck on a train in your lunch hour between dinner and bedtime da, 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 da. they're concise original and affordable so radish i did not quite read in one, one sitting because it's about 100 pages this one, first time around, I read it in one sitting, easy peasy, um, on a comfortable sofa, the dark night outside, just like nice. ideal, just ideal right conditions. Setting. Yes, yeah, exactly. excellent. Have uh, you read Marrow yet? Have, have read I read Marrow? No, I've not got that one. I have an oh, e-copy yeah. of um, the Sutong one, um, Petulia's oh. Rouge Tin. I have a physical copy of Radish that I picked up at the Guanghua Bookstore in London's Chinatown. Uh, but no, Maro, I do not have yet. But I'm thinking uh, I might get your hands on it. Yeah, I'm I'm considering splurging and completing this orange set, like treating it like the uh, the sets of houses in Monopoly. I'll uh-huh. complete this orange set, and then maybe in one fell swoop, I'll get the yellow set because that's got some <laughs> cool titles. Excellent. Yeah. Um. So a little bonus question, so to speak, about um book length. Uh, I was talking in the last episode with Michelle Dieter about how some Chinese uh books and Chinese writers, well, some of the books tend to be very, very long. And the writers are sometimes, you know, not making a value judgment here, but they're not edited very heavily. The role of the editor isn't quite as big. Is that another reason why novellas from China in particular are maybe a good format that translators and publishers should? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I I definitely think so. That's, there's sort of, I'd say there's sort of a two-part two-part reason to this. Um, one is the publishing environment. So editors are really not um, not expected to do like major developmental edits with the mm. writer. And this is in part just because they don't have that culture. It's also because the way the publishing houses are set up, they don't have that sort of long career arc. Editors at publishing houses don't have that long career arc that sort of allows you to grow in authority over the course of decades and like form long-term relationships with authors right. uh, where you can sort of work with them as equals on their, on their books. And that does happen, but that's not sort of the norm. Um, we ran publishing fellowships in, uh, in Beijing for three years running a few years ago. And something that the, the foreign visitors would always say is like, why, why is everyone in the Chinese publishing industry under, under 30? 
and you know in many cases under 28 or 27 it just seems like a bunch of you know very young people and i think just structurally the way the publishing industry works in china it does not encourage that sort of long slow development of editorial talent mm-hmm. and the writers are not accustomed to that and and basically what happens with the books is um you know they get sort of edited for typos and and political problems yeah. and usually that's it and i just don't think anyone writing a, a novel anywhere you know it's it's a, it's hard <laughs> writing a novel is like running it's running a marathon it takes a huge amount of energy a huge amount of self discipline a huge amount of time and unless you are a very 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 disciplined writer um you know everybody needs help from an editor Mm-hmm. Uh so I I sort of I wish that was happening and I wish that things would develop in that direction. I think another reason is um is more related to uh the break in literary traditions that's happened uh in China over the past 50 or 60 years basically. You know, basically the original sort of republican era the 1920s, 30s, 40s um that kind of uh connected literary development was broken after the establishment of the PRC and right. stayed broken for several several decades until the 80s when everything revived and and you know three decades is enough to kind of kill a literary tradition it's enough to really mm-hmm. um really break that that continuity and so people are to a certain extent they're starting to learn all over again how to write and they did that as we talked about earlier with the with the help of a lot of translated um fiction from abroad yeah. and i think that of all of all the technical lessons one can learn about writing um how to structure a long novel is one of the last lessons that you learn and it's one of the hardest lessons to learn um you know you can read somebody else's writing and learn how to put together sentences pretty quick um because it's you know it's most obvious the sentence level stuff is the most obvious and you, you can, can learn absorb how to, that passively you can absorb that passively you're learning to do it even without realizing that you're learning it um mm-hmm. characterization all that kind of stuff um but really the deepest lessons and the hardest lessons to learn are um the pacing and structure of a novel how to treat it like a like a, almost a architectural object uh yeah. and those things those lessons you don't necessarily absorb unconsciously you really have to go looking for it. you have to sort of sit down with a novel and read it you know four or five times how does this person structure it how does it rhythmically uh how does it move how is it like a, a piece of music in three in three movements or something like that mm-hmm. um those yeah. lessons and, and that sort of combined with the lack of uh the lack of literary instruction there's no mf well there are but there's there's very little sort of teaching of literature um right and you might you might get that in a class you might get somebody you know the structure of a novel that could be a whole class and i think that that is happening less so i think that just in general chinese writers are thinking less about their novels as um you know a, a structural work of architecture that they have to sort of adjust and think about from from beginning to end and they're more just kind of like here i go you know start at the beginning and write until it's done and now it's done <coughs> and that's sort of a mean that's a mean judgment and and another generalization but um i think often that's that's what's going on Right. Well, at the risk of saying something a little bit related to politics and also generalizing, and I, I try not to say blanket statements like this on the show, but I think yeah. that could be a good time. Um, so you're talking about how Chinese writers or Chinese literature as a whole is trying to kind of even now find its feet again, you know, link, yeah, like maybe not even link back with the past, but just get a tradition going and on a technical level, get editorial practices going. But surely that's going to be harder in a country like China where the government has political direction or control of literature literature to to some extent compared with a country that doesn't so i to think of an example i i know nothing about south korea or south korean literature but the during the cold war they were also on, under an authoritarian regime now they're not do you think that would mean south korean authors have a 
more conducive environment for establishing some literary institutions and traditions than Chinese writers? Yeah, let's see. Politics. I would have said up until a couple of years ago, I would have said that politics doesn't have as much impact on literature as people think, or at least the impact mm-hmm. is not the not it's not the kind of impact that people imagine when they no, think of it's like not Soviet Russia and it's not North Korea. Exactly. And I think that the uh, the the effects of politics are much more subtle, much more insidious, uh, much less like you know, a guy with a red pen in a in an office someplace scratching out lines in your manuscript. That does happen. Um, but I don't but I think that the but the negative effects of politics are happening much earlier, sort of much more subconsciously on the part of the authors. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think that in terms of obstacles to developing a new literary tradition in China, it's been much more just the enormous pace of change, uh, right. the way that society is translate, uh, transforming, the effects of commercialization, uh, the sort of wrenching into the modern era. Things are changing so quickly. Authors are kind of scrambling to keep up. Um, you know, I think to, to turn... To turn your observations and experiences into a, into convincing fiction, it might you might need to gestate something for ten years, twenty years. You know, it's like this slow process of mulching. Um, and Chinese writers are just not getting that that opportunity. Things are changing so quickly, uh, right? And it's just sort of you know, it's just like this. But every few every five years, you're in a completely different situation, different concerns, different social problems. Um, I think that's one of the harder hardest things about being a Chinese writer right now. It's just, you just can't keep up with it. Well, and, that, you know, the writers yeah. keep saying like, oh, you know, reality is way weir- weirder than anything we could come up with in our fiction. And I think that's still the case mm-hmm. and continues to be the case with the coronavirus and the response to it. I mean, you can write about it, but Jesus, how, like, how can you, how long would it take to sort of sit down and really absorb and, and digest everything that's going on and turn it into fiction? By the time you do, there's going to be some other weird thing happening in society. Well, this is kind of, at least it's got me thinking of my uh, dissertation topic and regular topic of this podcast, uh, Chinese sci-fi. Mm-hmm. I think the I think it's Chen Xiufan. He's said things to the effect of reality in today's China is now sci-fi. And yeah. you know, it, as a Westerner saying that, you could be you could be accused of I don't what's what's the Nathaniel Isaacson used the term techno-orientalism, like thinking that blah blah rapidly developing Asian country as a vision of the future as people maybe used to do for Japan yeah. is not always the smartest thing to do. But on the other hand, if, if the just pace of change in China is too fast for realist fiction to keep up with it, then maybe that does lend an advantage both to stranger stories like this one, but also to stories that do deal with technology in the future. And yeah, absolutely. I think like, that's I one think. of the reasons that sci-fi writers are, are, um, in China, they're sort of having a heyday right now. They've got right. the tools for this. You know, they they have the they have the tools already to deal with these sorts of problems and to look ahead and to see mm-hmm. where where China might be going. And they're doing a great job with it. Chen Chufan uh, is definitely a great example of that. Yeah, like I know a previous show guest and the kind of translator of Chinese sci-fi, Ken Liu. Mm-hmm. He's quite skeptical about the idea of there being like a new wave or guaranteed continued success of Chinese sci-fi or Chinese sci-fi in translation. But honestly, like, I don't know, it seems like all the signs point to it continuing to be relevant for quite a while. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, he, he would probably have a better sense of the, of the future direction of this than, than I would, but it, right. I mean, it, it already is successful. I mean, there already has been, uh, you know, a, a wave of really successful, really interesting uh, Chinese science fiction. Yeah, I, I think he just takes that um, angle to avoid um, or to push back against silly generalizations that people might make. But yeah, yeah or predictions about the future, which is a, just a mugs game. I mean, I, I try as 
as hard as I can to stay away from saying, you know, what, what's likely to happen in the future. Nobody has any idea. And, oh, and, and the other thing about politics is that it's getting worse. Um, that I, I think that, you know, we were just saying that it's not Soviet-style red pen censorship in the office uh, kind of a situation in China now, but it's actually headed in that direction. And, right, it's, yes. and this, the situation for authors there is getting much, much worse. And there's a mm -hmm. lot of sort of, I get a lot of moping and a lot of, uh, a lot of complaining uh, from Chinese author friends, a lot of writing visa recommendation letters for people trying to get out of the country. I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's bad right now. It's, it's a really bad environment and there's no immediate reason to think um, that it's going to get better. Yeah. Well, what else can I say except that that sucks and I hope it does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, things have got a little bit gloomy now. Um, my next question was going to be about Poppy Toland, but we kind of um, we kind of talked a little bit about her already. Mm -hmm. So I guess I can ask you some miscellaneous questions now. So, sure. or at least we can enter the category called miscellaneous, maybe where the story would actually best fit. Um, so, first question: It's about the word of the day because this is something I try to do for every episode and. Oh shit! I think I forgot to. Go oh no! Oh, well, we we could make it. Um, would Shen Shenfeng avant garde be too boring? No, I think that's fine because you can go from there to a lot of other stuff. Hmm. Or maybe. Hmm. Or how about um? How about memory? Since we've already yeah, explained right. Shenfeng, this is a word I don't know. So could you please teach me and the listeners how do we say memory in Mandarin? Oh, okay. Uh, it's ji. So um. Ji is sort of the normal word for thinking of something, remembering something. Ji yi. So, uh, you know, so a lot of Chinese words, there's, a di, if you want to come up with sort of the abstract noun, there's two characters that go together. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're using just sort of an everyday verb, it's usually the first character. So ji is ji. like, you know, nijiruma, did you remember? I can't, right. I can't remember. Okay. So ji is sort of the normal, before. just everyday conversation word for, for remember. And then ji is sort of lo the larger concept of memory. And you might talk about you know, historical memory or, or, um, you know, somebody's memory isn't what they, what it used to be. That kind of, that's, it's sort of a more general abstract concept mm. for memory. Right. So if we're talking about the narrator of this story, we want to use the big concept G. I'm almost certain that that my, uh, with that phrase about my memory being obstructed, I'm, um, I'm sure that he used G. Right. I'm not, I'm not sure I'll probably look it up and it isn't, but that, that's, <laughs> that, that's the sort of situation where you would use the full, um, right. the full word. I wonder if we can um, do a second word of the day because the idea of the narrator is, it's a big thing here because the narrator is also the author. So is, is there a standard Mandarin noun for the narrator? Yeah, Xu Shi is the, um, is the usual phrase, is the usual word for, for narration um, or narrative. Xu Shi. used Xu Shi. Xu Shi, okay. Uh, and I think sure is just, uh, this is another thing where I'll embarrass myself. Sure, it's just, uh, you know, like normal things or business. Like matters, yeah. Yeah, matters, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's correct. Like Meisha or Meisha. Uh-huh. is just to relate, to recount, to, to tell a story. Okay, cool. So, Xu would be the narrator. Xu I remember I learned Zhe because uh, we did a story by Ilzashin Devourer, and I learned that, uh, was it Tun Tushu? Yeah, tun shi zhe, tun, I think. Tun shi zhe. Yeah. I, so zhe, I think that's what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. So zhe, I guess that's like in English when we say like write, writer, the e, er on the end makes it yep. a person, and zhe is like yep. one for that in Chinese. Cool. That's pretty much exactly how it's used. Yep. Yeah. I'm kind of convinced most of my listeners have better Chinese than me, but I think there are some listeners who'll be interested to know this stuff. So, silly questions about Chinese words aside, let's get on to other kind of random questions. I just hope you'll humor me. 
Um, I've asked listeners before what song a story makes them think of, but something about this one made me think of like sitting back and enjoy, uh, enjoying a beverage. Um, but I thought, what what beverage would it be? So if you could pair Flock of Brown Birds with a drink or a song, if you if a song springs to mind, um, what would it be? Because I could I could I asked I'm asking this because I could imagine myself sitting down with a nice cup of tea by the lakeside. I could imagine myself sitting down with a coffee late at night having a conversation just like the characters in the story or I could imagine wandering into a murky place like the inn in the village in the story and having a glass of I don't know Guinness or a murky sorghum drink of some sort or I could even imagine having a clear glass of water and staring into it a little bit like uh, Gothay does the lake he's staying by so all this justification for why I'm asking the question aside um, what would drink would you associate with this story? Let's see. I think absinthe would be the obvious uh, answer, but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go there. Um, no. I kind of think uh, like a very strong espresso, um, right? It, the kind that you drink and then you kind of regret having drunk it afterwards uh, because you get too much of a caffeine high and it makes you a little bit jittery mm. and maybe a little bit anxious. Um, right. He's trying so hard. There's so much effort in this in the story on the part of the narrator, like to grab onto things. He's so he's so worried. He's so anxious. It makes me think of somebody like sort of their leg jiggling under the table as they sip um, as they sip an espresso they probably shouldn't have ordered. Yeah, yeah, it's a strange thing that there are parts. I guess the narrator himself is a very highly strong character, but the yeah. feel I get from the story is dreamy in the sense of like kind of laid back and weird. It's like an yeah, cocktail. yeah. The the environment of the story is is almost lethargic in some ways in the in the the dream sequences, but the the man himself is just very very tightly strung i think mm, yeah um it's funny you mention absinthe because i think maybe an unconscious inspiration for that question is from this other podcast i listened to that i mentioned on this podcast a few times but it seems to be influencing the way i think a lot it's called weird studies and they look at whatever the weird quote unquote angle at various like pieces of literature or film or philosophy is and an idea they cite i don't know who, whose idea is is that um they're mostly using it to talk about drugs, um, the different kind of qualities that these substances have, and then like anthropomorphizing it. So the idea that there's a particular, like if you think of, I'll just pick alcohol because it's not illegal, that there's a particular spirit that lives inside alcohol. And when you consume the drink, that kind of imagined being manifests itself. And I think they, they were mostly using it to talk about different drugs, but um, they did mention alcohol and the alcohol they mentioned was absinthe maybe citing uh, the film Moulin Rouge when absinthe is, is a, it's like a Tinkerbell fairy sort of thing. Yeah, um, the green fairy is what they used to call it. Yes, exactly. But that is that has absolutely nothing to do with this story. I just thought I'd mention it. Um, okay, last miscellaneous question. Um, are you working on any projects just now? I mean, we can assume you are working on Paper Republic in the general sense, but is there mm-hmm. any specific things going on with yourself or with Paper Republic you'd like to plug? Or any works that you've put out there into the uh, the internet or culture at large? Yeah, no. Um, there's a bunch of a bunch of things I have on hand um, that I should be done with already, but I'm not. Mm. I'm editing uh, Japanese Chinchang, uh, oh. <clears throat> which is translated by Vicky Harmon and uh, Dylan King, who I, yeah. you've had on, right? Yeah. Yes. yes. So the and two of them translated well, Chinchang. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, there we there we are. It's a small. Mm. Small world here. Um, the two of them translated that. Uh, uh, Amazon is going to publish it, and I'm in the midst of doing edits for that, so that's fun. Oh, cool. Um, 
Speaking of like weird, uh, dreamlike intellectual Chinese novellas, I'm uh, I'm translating by a Nanjing writer named Lu Yang. Okay. Uh, and so it was his uh, Silver Tiger that I, I pitched to the New Yorker, I guess, a year and a half ago or so that they ran at the end of 2018, maybe? I can't remember. Um, so I did the short story Silver Tiger and then moved on to his, this novella called... Uh, which is literally means the small hours of 1993, but that's sort of, a, mm. I'm not sure that really works as an English title. So I'm thinking about that. It's the year that I was is, born. Oh yeah. Oh geez. Mm. <laughs> well, <clears throat> this, this story will have probably no specific uh, significance for you, but you can, maybe it's a good, it's a good excuse to read it. No, uh, no. Also a very, like a, he's a very sort of mm, a very thoughtful writer. I don't want to say that it's intellectual writing, but he's very, just a very deep, deeply educated, mm. uh, deep thinking author. That's a conversation Very, worth having in a future episode about the difference between thoughtfulness and intellectualism. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a thing that really, really stands out in Chinese literature. I mean, there's a, there are steep divides between sort of more, I don't know, we'd have to find a very sort of PC way of, of talking about this without deriding anyone. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, that w- it would be an interesting thing to talk about, but this story is very, very sort of, uh, philosophically um, inspired. And it's just also has some similarities to this story in that it's about a narrator who is locked in his own mind sort of, and the difficulties of speech, of participation in society, um, the impossibilities of making connections with other human beings. All that mm-hmm. kind of the, the secret to that um, so is that's podcasts. Secret to that is podcasts. <laughs> Where at one and the same time, you can sit in your room all alone, talking yes. at a blank com- computer monitor, and at the same time, um, be making connections with people. Oh no, so you figured out my secret, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> introvert <laughs> mm, um i was it occurred to me if you were looking for a way to, to talk about intellectual versus um reflective so i think everyone or i say everyone in the weird world of people talking about china on twitter um anyone who makes an analogy about confucianism gets ridiculed but we're yes. not on china twitter so i'm going to do it <laughs> and you can tell me if this is stupid or not um maybe the difference yeah. maybe as an analogy for intellectual versus reflective thinking or writing is confucianism and taoism if I tweet that, I will, and if if people deem to even notice me, yeah, they would make fun of me. Is there anything to <laughs> that? I get a smackdown. Yes. Oh, I wish I wish Chinese writers were drawing more on Taoism. Mm. I think um, generally, generally, what people say is Ah Chung is one of the most sort of Taoist influenced uh, Chinese Chinese authors. And his, with his king series, he's got a king of king of king of trees, king of chess, king of children. Something like that. That's been translated, published in English. Those are I, very nice titles. Yeah, really cool. Um, really cool. Really cool writing and very sort of like dug into nature, dug into dug into that kind of like, mm. that kind of language. I would say there's something Taoist about Moyen's radish in mm. in this in that boy's sort of interaction with uh, nature. Like he's sort of a you know he's like the idiot genius that shows up in a lot of Chinese. Uh, fiction, but he's done really right. well, and he's got this sort of his his sensory uh, appreciation of the world. He's got like this synesthesia going on. Yes. You know, his senses are cross wired, and he he's very much part of nature. Um, mm. So I, I I would say if there's any argument for Taoism in, in Chinese fiction, that's a that's an excellent one. That character of of, of Blackie or whatever they ended up whatever we ended up calling him in, in English. Or just just otherwise, AI. I would say not so much. Hey, hi. Oh, was that, did we just leave it in Pinyin? Yeah, yeah. I actually talked oh, about good. that oh. with Mihaila, and I think that was the, the best. Like I said, like you could have called him like Dark Boy or Black Boy or, yeah, like you said, Blackie, but that would have been. Black Boy, that would have gone over really well. I know. Yes. 
there's just no good way of <laughs> no yeah. good way of handling well, that. Yeah, oh, good. I'm glad it, we stuck with it. It's alliterative. It's nice. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. It actually does sound nice. But in general, no. I think <clears throat> here's here's a here's an awful, stupid generalization. I think Chinese culture in general would benefit from going back to its Taoist roots a little bit more. You kind of wish it would, um, mm. and, it, and not just writers. Um, but there, I think radishes. Radishes. There's an argument to be made that it's that it's uh, a bit of Taoist writing. Yeah, well, the magic of podcasts is no one can screenshot your quote and share it without its context. <laughs> or they can, it's, much, it's a lot harder. It takes more effort. You can't just do it with the snap of a finger. Yeah, um, that's good. And that screens yeah. out most of the... Uh, most of the Those people. Brilliant, uh, yeah, most people. <laughs> a thing um, I noticed on this podcast that I was doing in the earlier episodes was I kept referring back to existentialism as like a way of interpreting the books. And... <laughs> It wasn't always because it really suited the book. It seemed to be just me projecting, <laughs> not always projecting incorrectly, but that seemed to be my where my head was at. And right. now it's definitely been more from like this weird perspective. I mean, you've probably noticed I've kept trying to bring up things like David Lynch and whatnot. And often it's right. not because it's the most appropriate way of looking at it. That just seems to be where, where my head's at. Mm-hmm. And now that you mention it, maybe maybe not that I know very much about Taoism, but maybe I'm looking for those kinds of stories, not necessarily in Chinese writing, but stuff that is more quote unquote Taoist seems to be mm-hmm. in my wheelhouse, but I'll have to read up on Taoism because literally the only books I've read on it are the Tao of Pooh and the Tay of Piglet. I don't know if you've come across those. <laughs> I, have, I, have. I mean, that's a fine place to start, but yeah. <laughs> Tronza, Tronza would definitely uh, do mm. you a treat. There's Actually, a, get I've, a couple different translations. Yeah, I realize I've lied. I have read, um, I think I've read the book of changes. But yeah. it was a long time ago. Know, man. That's that's trippy too. I'm not sure how much you're going to get out of that. No, I, not much was the answer. But <laughs> that was before I even knew I was going to live in China or was even particularly interested in China. So oh, cool. Yeah, it was John Emo's movies were sort of my entree to an interest in China. It turns right. out it wasn't anything like his movies. Ah, it was it less colorful? Less colorful and much less uh, Gongli. I didn't see Gongli anywhere. Ah, it's a shame. But what I did discover is that the movies of his that I liked the most were um, were filmed from Chinese literature. And that was actually right. sort of what, what turned me in the direction of Chinese fiction to begin with. This is a completely random point, but color levels in China um, and just how strange things can affect reality. So obviously on smoggy days, just like from a visual, like a filmmaking perspective, contrast is lower on smoggy days, colors are less right. saturated. So in effect, you would get there that you wouldn't really get in Scotland that shows you how subjective your senses are, I suppose, or environmental conditions are, it would be really easy to notice on a a day when the rain had cleared away the smog, things were, all the things that you thought were a little bit muted actually weren't. They were a lot more colorful than Mm. you thought. But yeah, that's Mm. that's not a question. This is just a meandering thought. Yeah, yeah. no, it makes sense. Except living in Beijing, it turns out they weren't actually all that colorful. Um, (laughs) Beijing's great. (laughs) gray and dusty to begin with what was nice was after the rains uh and mm. the tree leaves got washed and you'd see actual like proper green leaves not coated in dust that yeah nice. i'm speaking from my place of jiangnan privilege i guess yeah yeah it's nicer down there mm. um right that's all the miscellaneous questions and we certainly well i've certainly forced a lot of miscellany in there um so before we end the interview i'd just like to take a chance to direct listeners to like further reading or further things to look into. And I, I, f- I figure you might be a really great person to ask. So if listeners um, 
enjoyed hearing about Flock of Brown Birds or if they read it and love it, where else would you point them apart from maybe the obvious, the um, the Invisibility Cloak, the other translated Gofei story? And it, you can you can go for anything. This doesn't have to be Chinese literature. Oh, ooh, that's a little too large. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, zoom, zoom back in. <laughs> Chinese books only. <laughs> well, yeah, more, more Gofei and more Gofei is coming. So the Jianglan trilogy uh, is coming out. Mm. I would definitely pick up a copy of uh, the... I think they called it the years, the months, the days, or just year, month, day, years, months. I don't know what they call it, but the Yanlianku um, mm. novella uh, collection from Grover Press in the U.S. What else? I mean, we've always we've got all these short pieces on the Paper Republic website. We've got a section of the site called Read Paper Republic, where we where we pu- publish a short story collection, short stories or or essays in full translation that you can read online. Yeah, and I think that's always a great place to sort of dabble your toes. And, um, you know, you can go from there. You read something you like uh, mm-hmm. by, by an author who maybe has a novel in translation and go pick it up from there. So I, I would encourage people to, to look at those short stories and just uh, and see what they think. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff up on there. And I've used it, um, like I've read Feidao on there. I read Song Aman, yeah. the author we covered in the yeah, last yeah, episode yeah, yeah. there. Lots of fun things that you wouldn't necessarily find in print up on Read Paper Republic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's continuing that idea that short, sometimes the short stuff is the best. Yeah, and I do think, like, just personally, so the the two Penguin China Specials books on my bookshelf, this and Radish, I feel like they're spirit, spiritually related in some way. Just maybe it's just by the the weirdness, the the I don't know the what's the, the un, unfamiliar yet familiar realities. So if if readers, if you guys are if you're listening, have read Radish, I think you'd like Flock of Brown Birds, and vice versa. That's my suspicion, anyway. Cool, I agree. Yeah. And last question of all, Eric, um, what are you reading just now? Um, I'm mostly just reading this uh, Jiapeng book that I'm editing, unfortunately. All right. Um, when I have time to, to do unrelated, um, un, uh, unwork-related reading, it's uh, Barry Lopez's Arctic Dreams. It's a big, fat book about the Arctic. Oh. Um, I've been on a, a British naturalist writer kick uh, for a, a little while here, and so I'm, I'm about right. halfway through. Cool. Oh, well, he's not British, but anyway, I, I learned about all it right. from Robert McFarland, so, so right. it still counts. So he's in that sort of wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, it's, yeah, just last thing to say. It's a funny thing because I think when I interviewed Dylan, that was really early on in the show before I had the format. And he mentioned that they were doing this book, Chin Chiang, and they were thinking of different ways to title it. And since then, I've spoken to Nikki in real life a couple of times on the podcast. And she's mentioned like, uh, and she, she went into a fair bit of detail about it. When I met her at the Leeds Conference on Genre Fiction, she mentioned Chin Chang Shanxi Opera a few times. It came up, um, I think Michelle Dieter mentioned it in our chat, either on the show or off. And now you've mentioned it and it's it's you know it's it's got its title now it's going to come out through amazon crossing now so it's been interesting getting little snatches of just hearing how that one's coming along yeah it's uh, i'm about halfway through it yeah awesome it's long <laughs> right <laughs> another after all our dissing of long chinese books i know i know i know except for this one this one's great yes this is this is the good one well eric i would love to keep on chatting but i think my head is literally getting sore from um staring sitting near a, a bright screen in a dark room for so long so i should probably wrap it up now excellent well we can continue this at a later date so once more a very big thank you to eric for coming on the show that was a fantastic chat about flock of brown birds and so many other things i really really enjoyed that now we've come to the end of the show That means it's time for me to do the plugs. I'm going to try and get through them quickly today. So first one, it's about the Trishafic Discord. I've plugged this quite a few times, but just in case the message hasn't 
Sunken. If you are looking for a place to chat with other listeners of the show or myself in various specialized topics, for example, the sci-fi group chat that we've got going in there, the links to join will be at the top of the show's Instagram page and in the uh, link tree. And pretty much the same goes for my Twitter. It's right at the top there in the link tree link in the pinned tweet. So speaking of Instagram and Twitter, uh, that Twitter is my own one, at Angus Likes Words, but something like 80% of my tweets are just about the podcast. The Instagram is specialised for the podcast. It's at Trichific, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. Speaking of T-R-C-H-F-I-C, just stick that on the end of Patreon.com or BuyMeACoffee.com to support the show tangibly and by tangibly i mean with your lovely lovely money the show is not quite free for me i do have to pay hosting fees to keep all the files up there and you know i get through a lot of tea bags in my daily life and i need my tea habit to be funded and that's where you guys come in so yeah um if you want to give a monthly contribution to the show patreon's the place for that the advantage of Patreon and uh, becoming a contributor and whatnot is you get access to the bonus shows. There's hours of them up there. Yeah, what more can I say? That's the place to go to get access to those. If you'd rather give a one-off donation or you're a fool and would like to give a recurring donation with no bonus content, go to buymeacoffee.com. Both of them just stick slash trutrific on the end. So there's one thing missing, the last plug. Obviously, that's all about the most important thing you can do for the show, which is spreading the word. Tell your friends, tell your families, families, family, families. Well, maybe your family have a doppelganger. So tell your family, tell your family's doppelgangers, tell your estranged lover who's shown up on the shores of your curious lakeside home. Tell your editor who's chopping down your massive novel based on the revelations of St. John. And tell the strange man who guards that bridge that you tried to cross on a dark winter night. Please tell him he's very lonely. Until you do, Zai Jian. <laughs>